Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. A living history production. I'm Peter Hart and I'm Gary Bain and together we're. Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, hello, hello. Do you like a chatter? Do you like a natter? Then you'll like Chatter Natter with Rob Langham. What a day we're having today. But you know what, Rob? I feel as if something's missing. Do you think something... Something's not here that should be. Can you think what it might be? Beer? Well, beer, obviously. <laughs> I'm thinking more of Gary. Ah, of course. Well, very sad that he's not here. But he's got so many personal problems that he was bound to miss one. <laughs> He'll regret missing this one, though, because we've been looking forward to interviewing you. Uh, uh, what, what are you? Well, you're an enthusiastic... Um, Great war researcher, you're uh, you're a railway transport sausage person. You are all things to all men, Rob, in many, many ways. Uh, uh, but we'd like to know, this is an interview to, to find out a bit about you, a bit about some of the work you've done and a bit about some of the work you're going to do. So let's start off by, who are you? Who are you, Rob? Who are you? So uh, my name's Rob Langham, uh, born back in 1988 in the lovely town of Dunedin. Uh, That's up. only yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> We're only 33 years ago last week, <laughs> scarily. Um, born and raised in Leicestershire, went to school there, college, uh, didn't do too well at sixth form college, ended up going to university, study aviation management and operations. That so was that, a mistake. It was. <laughs> Not the best industry to be in in a recession as I came out of a university. Uh, for, for that, following sort of an interest in aviation growing up and did that for a few years, ended up working in transport. Moved all over the country for various reasons. Um, always you, had my interest. You used to fly a lot, didn't you? Used to, yeah, yeah. And then was one what, particular... what happened to you? Your whole career at one point <laughs> was based around flying. And what happened to you, Rob? Uh, developed a fear of flying, which is very useful to have uh, yeah. in the industry. Did but, that uh, finish your career as a whatever you... What were you at the time? Oh, bits and pieces. At the time, I was doing um, aerial survey work and doing a lot of <laughs> late night flights and low-level flood response flights in the back of the aircraft, that is, and just got to a point where I was like, ooh, not really very keen on this anymore. <laughs> you don't seem nervous. When we've been on the battlefield tours together with Gary, and, and, and but you, you don't seem nervous on that sort of flight. Um, or is it is it a deep inner thing that you hide from your fellow man? I think it's very well hidden, basically. Try and go to sleep beforehand. 
<laughs> Excellent. So uh, anyway, sorry, well, I, I've interrupted you with that silly thing. So so uh, so what 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 then? What do you, what what did you do after that? So after transport, so I've always had an interest in uh, military history and history in general. Now, so. No, 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 that's not enough. Where did you pick that up from? Who? Is it a, a who or is it a why or is it a what? What, uh, what, what, what is it? A bit of everything, really. I suppose a lot of it's family. My dad was interested, well, still is interested in history. Stories of a granddad who passed away about a year or so before I was born, but stories of him in North Africa and heavy anti-aircraft battery in the 8th Army. Um, then going through, up through Italy, um, being around family... My mum was family from the northeast, so being up there and exploring the northeast, of course, has incredible heritage. And going to museums, steam railways, places like Duxford, it all sort of rubbed off and soaked in, basically. And and with your interest in military history, where where did it land? What what if you see what I mean? Uh, which 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 period of military history? Uh, First World War mainly. So the Great yes, War. I the think Great you War. Mean, yes. Rob. <laughs> Certainly not WW1. <laughs> no, never. First World War is just about acceptable. Um, why that, do you think? Um, I think it's just sort of the whole era has always interested me. Um, and weirdly, so despite studying in London to do aviation management, I spent a lot of time while I was living at uh, Hendon in the old 1917 built officers' mess on the old Hendon aerodrome site by the museum. So that was a bit of a shoe in there. Um, do they still have the old uh, 1914, 18 stuff on the? Because uh, some of the, the those old officers mess still have the old RFC crests and things. Sadly, not that I saw. Oh, uh, there's like a 1917 date above the front door and a very grand staircase in the reception room, which looks like it hasn't changed in hundred and a bit years. But apart from that, it was all sort of gutted out for student accommodation. Sadly. All right. And and did you, I mean, people like Mick Manick, uh, sorry, good Lord, <laughs> let's say Manchester, uh, Edward Manick, Major Manick, uh, they, 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 they went to Hendon. Uh, did, did, you, did you think about people like that at the time? Did you, were you aware of it, its history then as an, Absolutely. Air, an airfield and training centre? Yeah, yeah. So one of the places I often went to as a kid was Hendon Royal Air Force Museum. So sort of living just down the road from it was quite handy. And with studying in London, I spent a lot of my spare time places like the Imperial War Museum and the National Army Museum and to probably learn more about the First World War from university than what was actually there to study itself. So Excellent. So that uh, did, 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 did that uh, did you start battlefield touring at that age or, or were you was it just a sort of interest museums, reading books, that kind of thing? Mostly that. There was a little bit of battlefield touring to um, to Flanders. Weirdly I've I've only done France briefly once, so I'm in the weird position where I've never been actually been to the Somme but I've been to Gallipoli four or five times now but uh, hopefully now, something I'm going to address at some point now at this early stage did you ever think that you would be writing books about the Great War or or, or, or was it just a passive interest then um, there was a bit of interest I don't really know where the sort of initial bit for writing came from but the first writing I did was not long after so I went to the Dolphin Tavern in Hoban um, which has or had I don't know if it's still there I haven't been there for so many years uh, a clock which stopped when a Zeppelin bomb hit nearby in 1915 wow so I did a bit of article writing up on the history of that. I sent it off to Britain at War magazine, who published it in April 2008, which would be my first article. Um, oh, and it all uh, sort of went that's from there, really. 13 years ago. Yeah. So you, this is a long-standing writing career as far as... Yeah, yeah. Actually, the, the strange thing is I can't really think where the idea for it sort of came from. I just tried my luck and it was successful and went from there, really. And it was around that time I started to look at aviation the Great War, like I say, with living in an officer's mess and Hendon Aerodrome up the, up the road and uh, my interest sort of really settled on the Hanley Page bombers and it's from there that's sort of the idea of writing a book based on the first hand accounts of Hanley Page crewmen 
uh, sort of came from. It just then took a very long time until it was actually published. Which which was your first book you wrote then? So the first one to be completed was the Northeastern Row in the First World War, which was published in 2013. Right. Uh, but the first one I had a contract for was what became known as Bloody Paralyzer, the giant handy page bombers of the First World War. Well, I think that fits on best. So yeah. so let's uh, let's talk about the bloody paralyzer. Oh, bloody paralyzer. <laughs> um, t- tell me a bit about the, the process of writing that then. So the initial part was, um, the, w- I mean, the weird thing is with my writing, it tends to be, certainly for my books, if I want to read a book and the book doesn't exist, I think, oh, I'll do it myself then. So I end up basically writing a book essentially for me <laughs> um, and trying to justify the cost of researching things by the, the pittance of getting royalties back. Um but yeah, so the first step was really sort of looking at first-hand accounts of Hanley Page, crewmen, getting as much information as I could. So some of them were already published, uh, some of the quite old books, some of them were fairly easy to find. Um, going to the Imperial War Museum and other sources for information. Yeah, we had well. a, we had a couple of interviews with. Uh, I didn't do them, but uh, my predecessors did uh, interviews with them. Uh, and I think is there some in the Great War series? I can't remember that. But yeah, that, so uh, did they have a? And of course, the RF Museum probably had some stuff as well. Uh, not so much in terms of first-hand accounts, which is my main thing. Um, they're te- technical information, but for myself, though obviously there is a market for it, and it's important to research that sort of thing. It's more the the personal history that interests so you're, me. So you're not you're not interested in nuts and bolts so much as as the uh, the the men who flew them. Definitely, yeah. The experiences of what it was actually like to fly in them and take them into combat and that sort of thing, and the actual use of them and what they did. But you do go into the background, because of, of, it's an interesting story how they came to build it and where yes. they came to build it. It was Cricklewood and around there. but Yeah, Cricklewood, it, northwest London area. Uh, and yeah. that whole story, you cover that fully in the book, though, don't you? Oh, and, yes, yeah. Because uh, yeah. that's really part of the, the story, isn't it? Cause Absolutely. It, it's such a big... It's a, it's a, it's a, tell us a bit about uh, the, the Hanley page. The thing I most remember about it is it's big. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the Hanley page was the Hanley page type O, because all the... Handy page aircraft had letter designations, so A, B, C, D, etc. Um, and specifically, it was a handy page type O slash 100. Uh, and 100 stood for 100 feet, which is the wingspan. So, obviously, 100 feet is very, very large for an aeroplane of its day. Um, it wasn't the largest of its day. There were larger Russian ones and German ones at this point as well. But certainly, the largest fixed wing aircraft that was seen in Britain at the time. Um, of course, you also have sort of dirigibles and airships at that time in Britain as well. But uh, in terms of a fixed-wing, heavier-than-air aircraft, the Handy Page was certainly the largest of the time. Um, so, yeah, very large wingspan, very long fuselage as well, I think about 75 feet long. Uh, twin uh, engines, Rolls-Royce Eagle engines, ooh. large fuselage, big bomb-carrying capacity. Well, well roughly, um, I mean, it, 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 the, when we say a big bomb-carrying capacity, I, th- I don't think we need the, the exact tonnage what well <laughs> i don't think we need the word ton do we uh, but the point is it was quite a big capacity for the time absolutely yeah so compared yeah. to a second world war lancaster or whatever it's it was nothing yeah nothing. yeah but for the time no it, it, it was quite a lot wasn't it yeah it would carry so the standard fits it had um quite nifty internal bombay arrangement um and then the bombs were hung by the noses vertically in the center of the fuselage so the, it had like a two-piece undercarriage so the fuselage was clear um, with a, like a honeycomb underneath it. And it carries with 1,612-pound bombs or eight 250-pound bombs. Um, and then later in the war, when they improved, it became the Handley Page 0400, which had a increased engines and 
other bits. Did that have a 400 uh, foot wingspan? Uh, I don't actually know where the 400 comes from. Definitely didn't come, same wingspan as before. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I suspect it's from the horsepower of the engines because the engines were about. It's sort of little grade them, but about three hundred seventy-five horsepower. So but it would it would confuse the literal-minded, that wouldn't it? Absolutely, yes, yeah. <laughs> Especially because you then have the V fifteen hundred. It's definitely not fifteen hundred foot wingspan either. But what about speed? I, I'm I'm not picturing these as being very fast. Not overly. You're sort of looking at around sort of seventy-five miles an hour, maybe sort of ninety ninety-five for the upgraded O four hundred version. Um, but it's all variable. I mean, it sort of depends which way the wind's blowing and how strong it is in terms of how fast it's actually flying compared to the ground. but Were they built... Yeah. I mean, did they have aircraft factories in them days where they built the whole thing? Or would it be put out to various little factories and then assembled at a big one? Yeah, bits uh, of both, really. Um, with the handy page being so large, certainly the prototype was built across different places and transported it across North London. How'd they move it across thing. North London? So the first part of it, um, they moved part of the fuselage towed behind Mr Frederick Handypage's motor car, sort of hit hitched it to the back of his car and drove it down to from wherever to wherever. Um, and then for actually moving the prototype from the factory to uh, Hendon Aerodrome where the first flight took place, basically lots and lots of men from the Royal Navy sort of tugging it along um, down the streets, taking, well, they'd already taken down sort of tram poles and wires and bits of street furniture, but there's a great um, description of them taking it up. I mean, the wings on this thing folded back so it could fit in the canvas hangers, which is quite important. Because you're definitely not going to get something 100 foot wide down any London street, pretty much. No, yeah. Um, they took it up uh, Collindale Avenue past Collindale Tube Station. Well, I know that. I can picture now, it. Yeah. What is now Collindale Tube Station, I don't think open until 1924 or so. But it's sort of taking it up that street towards Hendon Aerodrome. Um, and there's a story of Handy Page himself sort of climbing up people's trees in the front gardens, hacking off bits of offending trees that are in the way and burst tyres and that sort of thing. So. Took him a while to do it, and it was. And, been and that's all in the book, and that's what I like about the book uh, because because it it does look at this kind of thing, the the background story. I am ne- I've never been interested in nuts and bolts because I can't understand them because historians don't often understand mechanical things. But uh, fantastic, uh, it, it was uh, it's wonderful. Now, uh, so what's the uh, what's the purpose of this aeroplane? It's it's dropping big bangy things. Basically, yeah, yeah, bother. And uh, so so uh, who are they serving? Are they serving with the Royal Flying Corps? Fine body of men or are they serving with the Royal Naval Air Service an equally fine body of men yeah, Royal Naval Air Service with these so when they're first used they end up being used uh, well for naval purposes so the first lot that go over there go to uh, I'll get the designation but I think it's number three wing Royal Naval Air Service who was sort of in the French sector with the Sopwith Strutter uh, small little bombers targeting French the Sopwith one and a half one and a half Strutter of course dear, yes. dear. Yeah, dear. my favourite title of an aircraft ever I mean what yes. a name to conjure Absolutely. <laughs> oh what's that in the sky is it a Spitfire is it a Hurricane no it's the Sopwith one and a half Strutter <laughs> fantastic sorry no, but yeah so they're targeting uh, sort of German industry so uh, blast furnaces that sort of thing which are being used to sort of make submarines which in 1917 when these things enter service um have the Royal Navy seriously worried. Um, but after their initial use there, they end up going up to Dunkirk. And there's already f- another few handy pages that have gone over to, towards the Dunkirk area. And they've been using, surprisingly, for like a large lumbering aircraft that are not particularly high speed, um, being used to target German shipping, um, destroyers, seaplane bases, that sort of thing, in broad daylight. And it, was, it sort of goes wrong. Um, a couple of them get shot down and 
try and rescue them with flying, rescue the crew with flying boats and that sort of thing. Could they hit a ship? I'm thinking of the bomb aimers of those t- days. Pretty poor. I think they hit a patrol boat, which they describe as a destroyer. But I think it's sort of that's it really. And they sort of they soon realise it's, it's it's better stuff as a night bomber. Um, and they do bits of everything. They sort of they target the U-boat pens at Bruges, or Bruges, sort of Brussels on the coast and. That sort of thing, but like in the Second World War, these are hardened concrete. Well, pens, I was so. going to ask. Uh, we're, we're talking now. These are bra- brave men carrying out raids that that matter. Absolutely. But but is is the damage done by the bombs equal to the damage done by them, say, switching off the Bessemers um, to, because of the air raid? Absolutely. In other words, yeah, is yeah. it the air raid precautions that cause the damage or the bombs? Most likely, yeah. So sort of if we sort of briefly switch to my other book, the Northeast Row in the First World War with all the Zeppelin raids on the northeast coast, that sort of thing, the argument was that if they stop the trains every time there's a Zeppelin raid, or a warning of a Zeppelin raid, that's going to do more damage to the war effort than what a few bombs from a Zeppelin are going to do. And it's hard to say because I don't speak German, so I don't really have access, I don't really have access to German sources, but it's most likely it was similar there. I mean, certainly in terms of all the raids they ever did on the U-boat pens in the First World War, in both day and night bombing with other aircraft as well, um, the only thing it seems to do is slightly damage one U-boat, which had already been damaged by the Royal Navy and was in dock anyway. So so you don't overclaim. Because one thing I hate about books is that the aircraft that won the war. <laughs> you yeah. think, no, it didn't. <laughs> you, you, you have it much more grounded in reality. And it, for you, yeah. it's just interesting. Oh, now, definitely, yes. There's a couple of interesting features. One uh, that I want to ask is, uh, one is they sent one to the Dardanelles, uh, an O-100, uh, to raid Ottoman shipping in Constantinople. Now, I don't think you've got any personal experience accounts of that, but no. do you remember that much about that? Or have you been able to find, is it still, because they'd be great to get some accounts of that absolutely i haven't seen any accounts of it um it has a sort of brief career over there um i mean they sort of they, they flew out over there with like a spare propeller lashed to the top of the fuselage and spare engine that sort of thing um and this accounts of it going over then at one point it's going over uh i believe over bulgaria and it's so low over the mountain tops there's people on horses taking pot shots at it and that sort of thing um and you always and there's sort of there's this one quote about how there's basically no secrecy around it because everywhere it goes it's sort of hopped via obviously from London via France and Italy and that sort of thing and it's photographed and reported in the papers everywhere it goes so there's no secrecy around it and when it does eventually get there it does bomb Constantinople so it does in 1917 what the Royal Navy couldn't do in 1915 although they had also bombed it in 1916 with a tiny little BE2 um, but it doesn't do much damage and it ends up getting shot down um, sorry not shot down I believe it's engine failure actually. Um, off the coast of Gallipoli, Ooh. and the crew come ashore at Suvla Bay, where we've been. Rob. Exactly. Yep. Hide out there for a couple of days, and then realise there's no chance of the Royal Navy picking them up, <laughs> and um, surrender basically. And one of them, I'm gonna probably get criticised. I can't remember which one it was, but one of the crew um, was one of the ones who flew the Vickers Vimy across the Atlantic in 1919. I believe it's, it's either Oldcock or Brown. I don't oh yeah, it's one of them Cock. was a prisoner of the Turks. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, not I, I can't Brown, I think. But I, no, I, yes. yeah, let's not. Pin our reputations yeah, yeah, on this, yeah. Rob. Let's 50%. just say it's one of the two. It's one of the two, yeah, 50% right. Now, um, the other big incident... Now, you, you, there's a lot more... They, they really come into action on the Western Front uh, 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 in 1918. Or, well, in 1918, operationally. Yeah. And there's a, the worst night... Uh, some, I, can't, I can't remember the date. In September 1918, when 10 of them are shot down. Now, that's a lot. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, um... So there doesn't seem to have been as much effective um, night fighters, certainly compared to how Britain's night defences over London and not so much the rest of the country, but some of it um, were by this point. But they had some some aircraft up there. 
uh, anti-aircraft fire as well. Um, so yeah, so unfortunately, sort of, some of them get shot down. Um, there's some fantastic accounts of those who survived the landings. I think quite because it's such a slow lumbering machine, it's sort of, by the time part of it, if a wing hits the ground, the rest of it sort of goes around in slow motion. It's It's got a big crumple zone at the front of it, as long as the observer isn't in the front gun position. Um, it's got a big crumple zone. And there's accounts of them sort of hiding out and running across country, trying to escape the Germans and that sort of thing. But inevitably, most of them do. And this is captured. all in your book? Yes, all in the book, yeah. These fantastic now, accounts. I, I'm always interested in how... I mean, I, I tried to do a, a thing where I did a full Lancaster crew. Uh, uh, tell me... So t- t- and I think you do cover every member of the crew. Take me through the crew, if you can remember, the, the members of the crew. So the, there's a pilot. Uh, yeah, pilot, yeah. Uh, and what's his job? Uh, flying the plane, fly oddly the enough, yes, yeah. <laughs> this big steering wheel in front of him, sat in this board. Steering huge, wheel? Yes, yeah, like huge thing. Um, in a big open cockpit. I mean, the prototype did have a closed cockpit, but they didn't like... And you see this with the SC-5s as well, even in the 1930s with fighter aircraft. Um, they didn't like the feeling of being enclosed. They, didn't oh, sort of, they like the wind flowing through their hair. Yeah, and it's it's <laughs> similar with uh, steam locomotives as well. When they started putting cabs on steam locomotives, they the crew weren't a fan of them. I think folks don't feel connected to that. Is it. So there's a pilot. Is there a co-pilot? Uh, uh, thinking of Second World War bombers. Yeah. You... Yep, no co-pilot, um, just the one set of controls. And would the pilot be the officer or a sergeant? Would he be in charge of the plane or would it be the senior person there? Uh, not sure, to be honest. Oh, fair <laughs> they, enough, they all yeah. seem to be officers, all the ones I've come up with. They certainly did have sergeant pilots, um, but all the officers that I've, all the pilots that I've seen are all officers. And so, then it's sort of mixed as to whether it's a sergeant um, or second lieutenant or lieutenant, that sort of thing, as the primary observer. So who else is in the crew? So you've got sort of the nav- navigator slash observer who are the ones aiming and dropping the bombs, um, either from the gun position in front of the pilot or there was a position uh, behind and below the pilot in the floor. Would you like to comment on the accuracy of the bomb aiming devices? Uh, not great, basically. So I, I try and go into it in some detail, but again, it's quite complicated. The system. Do you not have, understand it really yourself? I've tried to, but it's, it's a bit beyond <laughs> me, to be honest. I never understood. Yeah. I remember reading about the uh, the bomb aiming devices. Now, yeah. And it's it's absolutely simple to anyone with a technical mind, but to an idiot, absolutely. It, it, it's, yeah. it's impenetrable. Yeah. So, uh, so you've got the observer... Bomb aimer, and that, so that's two, yep. pilot and that. And who else? Uh, you have the anal gunner. The what gunner? The anal gunner. <laughs> uh, well, technically, he's, he's the rear gunner, and he sort of sits in the back, um, separated from them by the bomb bay. Is this your name for him? <laughs> no, this is uh, this has come from the from the official Hanley page plans. Um, so he's in the back in a large open um, space at the back, so he's got two pillar mountings with a Lewis gun on each. On the left Not, and the right. Are they, oh, so they're separate, separate, they're separate guns. Yeah, there is a scarf rotating ring at the front, which had one or sometimes two Lewis guns on it. But at the back, it's just two separate pillar mountings. Right. Covering the rear and so the you above. could fire one or the other. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Depending on where the baddie airplane yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, and it's had really long arms, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's one at a time. So, so that's that. So that's the yeah. third member of the crew, yeah. the, the anal gunner. Yes, because, so according to the, I suppose technically it would be the rear gunner, but I call him the anal gunner because you have the, the anal gun position, as it's called on the plans, or anal gunner, that sort of basically thing. Basically arse, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And that's, um, so it's in the same compartment at the rear, um, aptly enough, and it's on the floor, but covering the underneath. There's like a little trap door there. And that's another gunner. Hang on. Uh, Just the one gunner. Sometimes so he has three guns. Oh, hang yeah, on. Yes. You'd have three guns. Well, you can only do one at a time. Uh, so sometimes left, right, yep. and, and through, the, bo- through yeah. the bottom. Yes. Um, so sometimes they'd have more <laughs> than one heck, person What in a there. world of opportunity. Absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> so sometimes they'd have more than one in there. More than one gunner in there. But um, And there's one account um, of them doing patrols when the Gota bombers and the Zeppelin-Starken bombers were 
sort of wreaking havoc over London in 1917-18. Um, they had patrols flying at night with the Handy Pages as Handy Page gunships trying to intercept them. Uh, and I think there is, I think there's one success where they get a go-to bomber. Um, but yeah, they've got more, more, more men in the back to operate the different machine guns there. Uh, but normally just the one chap there, as well as having these three Lewis guns available to him. Um, sometimes they carry Cooper bombs, the little 20 or 25 pound Cooper bombs, sort of lob out at targets of opportunity. So he'd do that as well? Yeah, if he wanted to. Some of them... So that's something. three. Any yeah. more? Uh, no, just the three. Sometimes now, who fires the gun at the front then? Do You mentioned the, the twin scarf-mounted yeah, Lewis Yeah, sometimes it was usually one, but sometimes it would be two twin Lewis guns at the front, and that would be the observer. Yeah, right. So the, the, it's a three-man crew? Yeah. Excellent, excellent. And 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 the um, do they have a career after? I mean, I I think they. Were, I would say that it was a successful design. Yeah. Did it achieve much? Not sure, but it but it, it's it's part of a process, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And it, but do, would you say they were successful? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one of the things. There was never enough of them, um, which is the main point. Um, part because Rolls Royce couldn't build enough engines. Um, they were sort of rolling off the production line and going straight into storage they didn't have the engines for them and they did try other engines but for some reason with handy pages they never adopted them but they have this with other aircraft so the bristol f2b fighter uh, which used the smaller Rolls royce falcon engine they used the sunbeam arab engine um the echo dh4 bomber designed by jeffrey de Havilland. that was supposed to have the same engine the Rolls royce eagle and that used um other different types of engines as well including fiat engines and that sort of thing, but, but it, just, it never took with the. They never couldn't with the get a replacement. Page. Yeah, yeah. And there's too much pressure on Rolls Royce to produce them. Yeah, uh, yeah. and they did, were going, they were going everywhere. I mean, they were sort of they hit one target and then another target. So they weren't really concentrating on one. They'd be like, oh, we need you to bomb a factory. Oh, we need you to bomb the shipyards. Oh, we need you to bomb a junction behind the line. An exciting and, life, absolutely. Now, did the, the did the aircraft have a career after the war, either in service or or, or adapted to passenger form? I, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so um, Hanley Page, so even before the war was out, he was already looking at how he can convert it into an airliner. And certainly it's, it's the biggest aircraft of its time. So if he's got a large fuselage, we can carry lots of bombs in it and carry a, a fair number, I think about eight passengers in it in fairly nice luxury instead. Um, so that was, it wasn't quite the first uh, British commercial flight after the war, but it's sort of the second one. And they turned them into airliners, uh, refined the design, made them specifically as airliners rather than just converting existing ones. And then Hanley Page went on to, well, not only just make large bombers like the Hampton, the Halifax, um, and of course the, the Victor, the huge jet bomber after the war, uh, but made airliners as well, sort of following on from the Hanley Page typo. So that's great. Uh, did the book do well? Uh, fairly well. Yeah, I, I liked it. I, I know that. And yeah. I, I think sometimes we, we, we need to think about books being good and enjoyable rather yeah. than necessarily top sales which yeah, uh, yeah. none of us have or no. not sorry not of not of my <laughs> social circle have now uh, the other book that that was almost written in tandem uh, roughly the same time was mm. the northeastern railway in the in, in the first world war which is another book which uh, i remember when i got that i thought thinking oh, but i really enjoyed it now tell me a bit about this now, what a tr- what what first attracted you to the North East Railway? <laughs> <laughs> so I've always had an interest in railway. So as I mentioned sort of earlier, as a, as a kid, I'd go up to my grandparents in the North East and they lived um, just behind an old railway line, so exploring that as a kid. Which one? To, Whereabouts? Um, so it's a place called Cutherston. It's on the line from Barnard Castle to Midton and Teesdale. Ooh. So very nice scenic part of the world anyway, and sort of the interest as a kid. of That line's not there anymore. No, no, long time. But the interest of walking along the old railway line and seeing the bridges and the viaducts and that sort of thing. Um so I've always had an interest in it and I was doing some history work up in Hartlepool um, 
in December 2011, stopped off at the Head of Steam Museum at Darlington North Road Station. Um, oh, I know that one. Yes, yeah. very nice little museum. Yeah, yeah, just just about. It's only about a mile from Darlington Station. It's ridiculous. Yes, yeah, around the corner. I'm surprised yeah. it wasn't been closed, but yeah, yeah, uh, it's a good museum. Absolutely. Yeah. So sort of looked up there, sort of have a brief. Look, oh, what have they got on what the railways in the First World War? Because certainly from looking at the Zeppelin raids in London, which is an interest of mine when I was living there, and sort of really interested in the civilian side of the war and sort of pre the centenary, no one was really looking much at the civilian side. Um, and I found all this stuff about the railway being involved in the Hartlepool bombardment, where German warships shelled, well, Hartlepool, Whitby and Scarborough in 1914. The damage done, the damage done late in the war by the Zeppelins, and how the, how the war affected the railway, rather than simply men going off to fight and then eventually, hopefully, coming back home again. Um, and I thought, oh, there's a fantastic story here. It sort of really needs to be gotten out there. So I thought, well... Well, well the, the North East Railway, they make a huge commitment, don't they? Absolutely. It's, it's unbelievable... Um, They've got to move the. Uh, they've got to move the economic staples for the country. Yep. So the food and all the other. Yep. Uh, coal, uh, crucially, in the northeast. Coal, yep. yes, yeah. uh, but everything, everything big and heavy, they have yeah. to move. Uh, they've got to move the, the soldiers, the horses. They've got to move. Uh, they've got to move the wounded about. That it's never ending. They've got. They've got an incredible amount of 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 of. of tasks to do absolutely yeah. and and they've lost some of their workforce to the army a lot uh, of think, them yeah and and they do get some of them back uh, but it, it's not quite oh yeah so so in all um I think it's about 22,000 men leaving total um, that, that they are actually employees of the northeastern railway are they yes yeah so um all in all um about a third of the entire male workforce of military age leave during the war serving the armed forces and of course a third of your men of military age that's your fittest men and that's the ones doing the important thing like driving the engines and lugging stuff about and, and all that sort of thing really so it's a huge loss so not only has it got to do what it has to do in peacetime has to do all the extra to work of it owing to wartime and it's lost the men to do it what what could replace men what what could it be there's men and what's that other sex <laughs> women <laughs> um yeah so they employ just under eight thousand women in various ways. So they don't work on the engines, well, not, not as driving or firing them or working in the signal boxes. Um, but locomotive cleaning, which is a... It's a, it it's a big like, job. Yeah, it sounds like you're just polishing an engine, making it look pretty, but it's more than that. I mean, I volunteer on railways and used to work on them, and the cleaning of it, it's vital. It's getting it prepared for service. It's Clean getting, that boiler, lad. Yep, yeah, getting the grit off it. I mean, if you leave grit on working parts, it's going to eventually cause damage if you leave it on there. Uh, detecting problems with it before it becomes more major problems. So it's a crucial part of it. And working in other roles as well, working on the platforms, working in warehouses. Um, there was another thousand or so working in a munitions factory, which is run by the North Eastern Railway, um, as well as sort of having some men get promoted in their roles if they're in junior roles or older men who were retired or about to retire. Back into they came as back, well. yeah. and that together covered the gap. Issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose everyone worked hard. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one of the big things is is one of the things that triggered your interest, which is the bombardment of uh, well, sort of Scarborough and Hartlepool in particular. But I, I I remember that picture in your book of the hole in the uh, the railway the railway wall. Yes, uh, which is still there. Well, the hole isn't, but you can see where it was. Yes, yeah. Uh, and that, those pictures are in your book, as I remember it. Yes, Not in the face. softback. 
not in the hardback because uh, I didn't realise it was there at the time. Oh, right. But, yeah. uh, well, I've got the softback. So yeah, so. yeah. Quickly rectified so, it for the softback version. So tell me about tell me about uh, well, pick pick one, Scarborough Hartlepool. Hartley, yeah. Is it I'll go for Hartlepool? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the Hartlepool. So at the time, it was Hartlepool on the headland and West Hartlepool, which is the bigger town, and they unified. I think 1967 or so. Um, but I mean, people have heard of well, hopefully heard of the bombardment of the East Coast and. German battle cruisers. Yep, 16th December 1914. They decided to try and lure the Royal Navy out, but it doesn't actually work. Um, and everyone remembers Scarborough and, Scarborough and Whitby because it's these beautiful peacetime coastal resorts, this sort of thing. Sodom! Sodom! Whereas the Hartley Falls are sort of more industrial shipyards and that sort of thing. Um, and there's much greater loss of life here. And also you have the Royal Navy defending it. Um, one of the crews, they have two light cruisers. Well, they have a number of destroyers that get beaten off out to sea two scout cruisers which go out one of them catches fire and runs aground uh, which blocks the harbour for the other one coming now out I didn't and... know about that oh, I've right. forgotten yes. about that <laughs> yeah and is there also... who battery there or is that at Scarborough Huff battery yes that's at Hartlepool as well um, how do you pronounce it the Huff or Huff or... <laughs> if yeah. only Gary was here he could have mispronounced that <laughs> so well as, yeah. as of course I did <laughs> yes uh, and there's also a submarine which gets blocked by the cruisers um, and by the time it gets out it can't do anything sadly um, but yes, you also have the, the brave men of the Durham Royal Garrison Artillery Territorial Force up on the headland at Hartlepool. So you have the three... You've, you've attended their... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I will... I'm not being a professional oral historian here. I'm just into... You, you've actually attended the ceremony for the Huff Gallery. Sorry, that... Huff Battery, I call Huff. it. Yeah, it might be Huff, but I've always called it the Huff You've battery, done the yeah. bit where you dress as a soldier and do the um, stand, stand still for a long time. Yes, stand you? at the uh, memorial to the bombardment there. So What's every that year, position called? Uh... Resting on arms reversed, yes. How long do you have to do it for? It uh, depends how long someone's talking for. <laughs> Longer in the centenary years, not so long, which is always good fun. On but you a, do it every year, do you? Every year, yep. So 8 o'clock in the morning, 16th December, uh, you'll find at least three of us stood there in the memorial. So whether it's 2014 where there's hundreds of people on TV cameras or the years before and after where there's a couple of passing people walking the dogs and us with ice But it matters to you? Absolutely. It's a very important event, event to do. Um, and yeah, it's just a very nice thing to keep on doing. I mean, even doing it last year with restrictions, we just sort of stayed apart from each other. And now, so I've, I've again, I, I, that was a sideline. But you, you go into this bombardment in detail. This is a very exciting story and absolutely. tragic in places. Yes, the, the the casualties that, yeah. and that's all covered in your book. I urge yeah. people to buy it. Buy it. Uh, it's it's a, a very different perspective of the war. Um, now, um, it's total war, isn't it? Uh, there's ambulance trains, there's everything going off. Yeah. Uh, it's, oh, well, I'll tell you one thing. I've I just remembered the 17th Northumberland Fusiliers. Oh, yes. We both, I think, have the uh, the history from the time. Yes. It used yeah. to be quite expensive, cheaper these days. Uh, tell me about them, because they're, 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 they're mainly recruited from the North Eastern Railway, aren't they? Yes. Or, or to my mind, they are. They are, yes. I, I think I interviewed one chap from them whose name may or may not have been Henderson. Uh, uh, right, yeah. Tell tell me about about them. What were they doing? So they were so well originally um, the northeastern row. I think it was Eric Campbell Geddes who went off, of course, with a very interesting um, war history. Um, approached the war office and said, "Look, we've got all these railwaymen who are going off to say, join the cavalry, artillery, infantry, navy. Would you like a trained unit of railwaymen? That might be quite useful." And the war officer goes, "Nah, it'll be all right." But this is 1914. It's still still a war of movement on the Western Front. You already have what they deem to be enough oil engineers who can deal with the railways. And of course, at the time, the French and Belgians are able to move the small British expeditionary force out there. But they say, oh, you can raise um, a unit of infantrymen. So similar to the PALS battalions. So the call goes out for a thousand men. They get about 3,000 within a few days. 
and this becomes the 17th Battalion, uh, North Northumberland Fusiliers. With the Fine body of men. Yep, Northeastern Row Battalion. They train at Hull, at the uh, docks there, which are joined, uh, which are, uh, well, owned jointly by the Northeastern Railway and the Hull and Barnsley Railway. Uh, so they train up there, they do some coastal defence work in East Yorkshire in the invasion scare of 1914-15. Um, they go across to the Western Front. Um, they, the Pioneers, after initially being infantry, this, well, still an infantry battalion, but a Pioneer battalion, uh, working on the roads, digging trenches. Important sort of roles. Thing. Absolutely, very important role, as well as acting as infantry when needed, especially the Lewis gun teams. And um, then they move into something else, don't they? Yes, so after the Battle of the Somme, huge need for railways. And oddly enough, after what Geddes originally said in 1914, um, spend most of their war as dedicated railway construction troops. And are they mainly working on light railways? I got that impression, but it may not be right. Uh, Deckerville and, and other... Yes, that, yeah. I always say Deckerville, but I think there are other types. Yeah, yeah. And if people don't know what they are, they're, they're like the children's... They used to be the children's railways that we saw in the 1950s and 60s before yeah, you were born. A bit wider than that. But yeah, so it's, it's two-foot gauge or thereabouts. Um, using steam locomotives, mainly important from America because we don't have enough capacity to build our own, um, and small little petrol-powered locomotives, which uh, sometimes have armoured bodies on them. But they did a bit of both. Sometimes it was narrow gauge, sometimes it was... But these are crucial, aren't they? They're, they're, Absolutely, yeah, They so move around troops. Yep. There's a great famous picture of, I think, some Durham's or Northumberland's coming out of the line in them. Yeah. But they also move forward heavy things. Yes, yeah, absolutely uh, important. Um, Lewis drunk, gun drums, uh, grenades, rifles, uh, everything. There's lots of heavy things, and of course shells. Yep, yeah, but yeah, just like back in Britain, anything you need to move in quantity, you need to do it by train. So. Absolutely. So, uh, any anything else you'd like to talk about that book? I mean, uh, it it it's it's a thematic and episodic book, but that's that way that that's better because it, if you told it chronologically, it would have been all over the. Place, yeah. all over the place. Yeah. But um, anything else that, that, that why you enjoyed this book so much? Because you did enjoy writing that one, as I, rem yeah. as I remember it. Definitely, yeah. It comes across that way in yeah. reading. I think it was just sort of finding out what life was like, not just on the railway itself, but on the whole of the northeast and sort of Britain as a microcosm um, during the First World War, how it was affected by rationing late in the war, the German submarine offensive, um, the Zeppelin raids, and the fear of those, and just just how bizarre it was and how it affected everything and I think especially with the First World War because the, the bombing wasn't quite so bad and the rationing wasn't quite severe we all sort of assume everything was fine and dandy back on the home front in the First World War but it's uh, every bit as interesting as it was in the Second World War. Now uh, let's, let's go on to some more sidelines now. Uh, one we've already led into, you, you do like what Gary, who's a cruel person, would describe as dressing up as a soldier. Don't you? Now, you do. Yes. Uh, in fact, yeah. dress, you like. Now, this is not so much... Um, I get the feeling you're one of those people who like to live the life Def and, yeah, rather yeah. than dress up and pretend to fight battles. I don't yeah, know. What, I don't, yeah. Tell me about what you do. And it's not just as a soldier. It's also, uh, it's also connected with railways and, and yeah. just general life. Yeah. Indeed, you look a bit like an Edwardian gentleman at this very moment. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. See, that's a compliment <laughs> <Yes>. to you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I've, sort of, especially called sort of living history rather than sort of reenacting battles. It. And that Sorry, sort of I'll, I'll, I'd lots of terms. Yeah, so it's not like I sort of do it on my own, um, but sort of do it with a group of friends. Who's that? Society. I mean, do you have a name or? Um, so I do uh, events with the Great War Society and also the Durham Pals, sort of recreating the 18th Battalion Durham Light Infantry. Fine body of men. Yeah, um, it's like I said, it's essentially dressing up as a soldier of the First World War, but. But living it's, it. But living it, yeah. It's not to like I said, it's not to run around going bang, bang, bang and falling over, which would just be like 
you're never going to recreate the battles of the First World War. No one's shooting it. Authentically or tastefully or without giving people severe trauma So what do it, you do? What is living history? What, what are you doing? So it's, it's wearing the uniform and sort of everything down from the long johns and the itchy wool vest and that sort of thing. Um, so for me, it's, it's understanding what it's like. I always actually like to wear the uniform. Like There's reasons why you can't run for miles at a time wearing the full equipment and feeling what the weight of it is like and... It's sort of getting that in-depth experience. Do you do the sort of camping like. out and things like that? Yeah, sort of sleeping overnight in trenches and that sort of thing. And Is that cold and wet? Um, if it's cold and wet, then yeah, it is. If it's really warm, then it's really warm. <laughs> All the vagaries of that. Um, I remember I learned from one of your living history people that I didn't know that the laces were leather. Yes, yeah. And that's the sort of thing that living history people can actually inform historians of. The, the, yeah. the, I, I have far more respect. I'm not really... Uh, terribly fond of people dressing up and fighting battles, but the the, the living history people like the past. I don't know whether you've got any connections with. Uh, well, they've gone now. The Taff Gilliam used to have the chums, didn't yes, he? The yeah. chums, which I think is before your time, really. Uh, a little bit, yeah. 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 But it's the same sort bit, yeah. of thing. It's ex- yeah. living, experiencing, and learning. Yeah, you? it's uh, one of the terms I've heard for it is experimental experimental archaeology. Sort of finding out how these things worked and that sort of thing. Um, and a lot of what we do is to members of the public. Um, so we talk to them about it and sort of show them how heavy the kit is, that sort of thing, and give them a bit of an insight into what their normal life was like at the time. So it's a bit of, I mean, it's enjoyment for me because it's sort of hanging out with like-minded chums and that sort of thing and finding out for myself. But it's also sharing the history with other people as well, which is always now we'll come back to the railway side of things later and now you also um you also started an academic career as well now tell me a bit about that why you're a successful well no you know you're not a successful (laughs) author none of us are successful authors you're an author (laughs) (laughs) like myself (laughs) an author um why 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 did you feel the need to uh to do to do more qualifications so I left sixth form with uh, what was it? it was a D in English and an E in history at A level. So not ideal when I'm then trying to write books on history. So I sort of I felt like I needed to sort of prove myself a bit, so that I knew what I was talking about as well. And as well as that, so got my degree in aviation, worked in aviation logistics for a bit, and it was all right, paid the bills. But well, when airlines weren't going bust and that sort of thing. Um, but I sort of wanted a bit of a change in career, and I thought getting an academic qualification in it would sort of help me get a further foot in the door and further my writing as well. So I saw the opportunity of the part-time First World War uh, master's degree at the University of Wolverhampton with Gary Sheffield, Spencer Jones, um, Stephen Mitchell, um, Stephen Badsey and others. Who well, they're well. well-known names in the, in the circle. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, it was part-time. Um, the government had just started doing uh, student loans for master's degrees, which before then I, I would, just wouldn't have been able to afford to do it. And with that only being part-time one weekend a month and distance learning um living in the northeast and going to university in wolverhampton was achievable so did that course for two years and got a master's degree at the end of it was it worth it absolutely absolutely it sort of i already had a good understanding of the first world war anyway but i think pretty much everyone on the course already had an understanding of the first world war in it there was john sheen who's done a lot of histories of the drum light infantry oh Um, yeah he's he's well known yeah uh yeah, I'd be struggling to pick out individual names because other people who are already well-known in the First World War 
um, just looking like myself to get the academic qualification. What do you think it gave you? Uh, I mean, the academic qualification, but yeah. did it give you a more rigorous approach to sources? To, Absolutely, yeah. To study, to, 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 to method, methodology? or Absolutely, what? yeah, all of that. And sort of just an overall grounding of the overall war and how it affected Britain as well. I mean, sort of when you were fighting in Africa and that sort of thing, but, but learning more an in-depth overall look at everything, the grander strategy, how it, how Britain fitted into all of it, and just the context of it all, essentially. Was, Any yeah. thoughts of doing a doctorate? Um, looked at it a couple of times. It's quite a strenuous process to get into. Um, but I think now my career is sort of taking off a bit more, maybe something to look at in future years. But for now, happy with where I am. Now, you, the, the, the last book that you've been working on is, is based on the sort of thesis. You do a mini thesis, don't you? Uh, uh, yes, dissertation at the uh, end. Uh, dissert- yeah. Sorry, yes. Yeah. But it's it's not a doctorate. It's no, a, it's no. a, it's quite, yeah, I mean, I did the same. You, you have a, a, a lengthy piece that you have to do to yeah. show you can do a lengthy piece of research. Now, this has produced for you a book with the world's, I mean, another book that's just chasing sales with its title. I mean, you've just really gone for the mainframe sort of, Sausage. No one could resist a book called The Triton Chaser. <laughs> Colon. The medium mark, a whippet tank in action on the Western Front, 1980. I mean, they're going to be beating your door down. <laughs> I think so. I'll get one of those reinforced special ones just in case and uh, worn water stones across the country. But uh, t- tell me about, I mean, the book's not written yet, is it? So uh, it I, I can't comment on no, it. Not, so no, all, all you can do is tell me about why you, on earth you wanted to write a book about uh, The Whippet. I would call this book The Whippet. Yes, but The Whippet. you called yeah, it The yeah. Triton Chase. Oh, Triton Chase, reasons. I believe. Triton. Yes. Oh, I think so. I could be wrong. But yeah. <laughs> what on earth possessed you to think there's yeah. a book in that? Um, like I said, it's all based on the dissertation. Um, and when I was first getting into the First World War and was a young lad, obviously tanks are quite an interesting subject to look at. Uh, and I always found the Whippet a fascinating vehicle, a fascinating design. There's a few bits and pieces out there on them, but... Yeah, because like a... I, I mean, normally a, any book on 1918 will have the story of musical box. Yes, and it's it such, I mean, yeah. Including my books, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. Uh, it's a cliché. It's a hell of a cliché. Yeah, well, absolutely. And there's absolutely. bugger all else about the, the Whippets, but yeah. you, you think there is, and yes. you're going to bring it to our yeah. attention. Yeah, so w- musical box was the Whippet that sort of got behind enemy lines on... Battle of Amiens was found burnt up. Eighth of August. And, yes, and um, but yeah, but most of the most of the books covering the whippets are sort of like the focus on musical box a little bit how they tried to work with the cavalry but it didn't work out and sort of ended at that really. And they're too slow for the cavalry. Exactly, exactly. Eight miles an hour. Because you speed of heavy, with your but, yeah. grasp, you, you you're not going to go along with the the whippet is a fast moving Hague's only fast moving resource. It's yeah. not the no, cavalry is exactly. only fast and the armoured cars as well. Oh yes, yes. Okay, so uh, so tell me. Um, uh, so, so what sort of sources have you got? Where, where have you got stuff from? I mean, where have you gone to? Obviously, not the RAF museum. This no, time. no, war um, museum. Yeah, Imperial War Museum, National Archives, a lot of it. The Tank Museum as well. Um, also, uh, King's College London, who've got the Fuller Papers there as well. So, so this one's a bit more, not so much uh, personal recollections because I couldn't find that many, and the ones that I, I did find weren't so great. But it's more look at the, a lot of it, it's the war diaries and other bits and pieces. I think I did one. Was it Pottend? Yes, that sounds like the chat. Yeah, he lived in Chesterfield, yeah. which I come from, is not So, so that's your next book. You look at have you? You, you, you it's advertised. Uh, it, apparently, it came out in March, uh, two thousand twenty-one. Apparently, but, so, yeah. do you know I haven't seen it? Is there a <laughs> well, reason for that? It's getting there. Things like lockdown and the real world. Oh, that's got in the right. Way lockdown yes. stopped you from working. Yes, it <laughs> <laughs> will give me more time. But uh, yeah, it is nearly there. It is nearly there. But. Uh, so Real when do you think it'll be published? Um, 
hopefully a year or so. But I mean, as I found with all the books as well, everything in production schedules with publishers is all over the place at the minute. So be ready when it's ready, essentially. So just to sum up that uh, what you can buy at the moment on military history is uh, the bloody paralyzer yep. and you can buy the Northeast Railway in the First World War. Yes. And the best way is just look, there's only one Rob Langham, as they say, there's only one Rob Langham. I hope so. Uh, on the internet. On, yeah. on, oh, no, there isn't. <laughs> there, oh, is, there is another one who works on football and there's another one who I believe works for Rutledge. Oh, and no. uh, occasionally when my talk's advertised online, they use a picture of the other Rob Langham. So, oh, well, that'd be, so that'd be a big disadvantage yeah. because you are gorgeous, Rob, obviously. Uh, Gary told me to say that, by the way. Um, so those are your two books out at the moment, and we can all look forward to the Triton Chaser. Uh, Triton, Triton, uh, whatever Chaser. I think it's Triton, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I've never been We've able covered to pronounce anything, them, so. as you know. Um, so that, that leaves us to, 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 to uh, the next thing. And, your other, and we're not going to spend so long on this because this is not... Uh, this is a military history podcast, uh, and and uh, you know it's a chatter and a natter. So, as it is a chatter, let's chatter about uh, your other book that's come out, which I'm the proud owner of a copy of, but which I can't remember the title because I couldn't find it when when, when you came. To I think mind. it's popping up a wonky table somewhere. Yeah, maybe. probably. Yeah, but uh, t- tell us about this book and tell us about your interest in railways, uh, how it led to this book. What is the book called? It's called the Stand Up and Tyne Railroad Company. Now, I would have jokingly said, "Oh, another bestseller," Absolutely. and you told me it's probably done better. <laughs> I think it has, yes. Now, tell me about the stand. What, what, what made you on earth write that? So, um, Stand Up and Tyne ran from, well, actually not quite Stand Up, um, Crawley side on the top of North West Durham. Now, the, we clarify where it is in the world. But yeah. The one thing that's strange is that, of course, I, I lived at Stand Up until I was eight and my yeah. family were from Stand Up and uh, I know Crawley side. It's a bloody steep hill. I've been walked up it. Yeah. And it, this is the railway that starts at the top of Crawley side, above yeah. Crawley side, a place called Park Head uh, Park. Uh, it just starts at Crawley Side itself, but then it winds up the hill to Park the, Head. To Park and Head. then where does it go? It goes over the moors towards a place called Waskily, which is the, well, it was nowhere. It was <laughs> the Waskily Way. Yes. <laughs> then uh, <I> Waskily. <laughs> if you think it was a Cornishman who named that, and he was saying Rascally, <laughs> <laughs> could well have been. Uh, and eventually winds itself up to just the south of the concert, but the concert itself didn't really exist at this time. Um, it sort of, sort of wiggles its way across north of Durham. Uh, not Durham itself, but County Durham, um, near Chesley Street through what is now Washington, Megan, which didn't really exist then either, um, and eventually ends up sort of skirting around, well, well past Sunderland, but avoid Sunderland itself, and ends up at South Shields. Now, why that? What made you interested in that? Um, you were living where? I was living, so at the time I started, lived at a place called Bolden Colliery, which the line went through, went up to South Shields. Um, is that what it was? It, was you, it went past you? Yes, basically, yeah. And then ended up moving to Anfield Plain. Um, That's That's near it as well. Yes, well, the Anfield Anfield was originally just called Anfield, and the plane comes from the inclined plane, which was on the railway and ran through the the village at the time. Um, And the original route of the railway was literally across the road from my house. Now, it's it's all deserted now, I think, throughout the... All of it has gone, hasn't it? All of it. Well, there's a a brief section in use at South Shields for the Metro, which is the suburban passenger service, um, another brief bit, of, um, a bit south of South Shields, which is used for freight. But essentially, come on in. How yeah. do you write a rail a book about a railway that's not there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lots and lots of research. Um, I mean, the main interest for me. So the, the Stanford Town Railroad Company, who opened it, built it in the 1830s. Uh, they went bust in 1841, so had a very brief. Um, history, not a very successful one, although the, the line did then become successful as more coal pits sprang up and concert ironworks set up and that sort of thing. But the early railroad from the 1830s not really interested me. Um, 
I remember going down to the National Archives full of excitement. I was going to look at these six massive ledgers of the Stanhope and Tarn Railroad Company and these enormous beautiful ledgers about, oh, about five inches thick. Open them up, dust flies off the pages and it's all sales ledgers about selling a couple of carts of lime to farmer blogs and that sort of thing. Um, so official history, there wasn't much there. Um, but going through other bits and pieces and exploring the line on foot because most of the line you can walk on or and cycle on. One of the great features of the book, and I like the book, it, it's not my interest, but I like, I'm interested in that railway. Uh, and there's lots of pictures then and now if you yes. can get them, but yeah. lots of pictures of the, that you've taken of the features on the on the. And, yeah. And what a lot of stuff there is left of it. Yep, still there. Yep, I mean, it's just it. still there, isn't it? Yep. Give us some examples. Um, just trying to think. So if we start at Crawley side itself, where the line started, there's uh, one of the lime kilns is still there at the limestone quarry. The limestone quarry itself is still there. Um, there's a superb tunnel called Hog Hill Tunnel, of 1833, which goes under the road. So as you drive... Can you go through it? Uh, it's technically private property, but... Uh, Can you go through it? Yes. <laughs> no one shot me yet, but uh, I would I'd say just in case, I wouldn't advise it. But, uh, but the house it's adjoined to has been uh, empty for, for years and years. Um, the original engineman's cottage, which goes near the tunnel, is still there. The engine house itself and winding the wagons up this steep hill has gone. Um, further up the hill, the engineman's cottage is there or left. There's bits and pieces um, of the engine house that's still there. The, the bits of the, the, what you call a platform, various platform bits are there yep, on various places. There. Yep. There's side routes off to the quarries. Uh, yep. I, I used to live just below the lime quarries, uh, the limestone quarries on the hill, you know, yep. the drop down. That, that there's so much to, I mean so the whole area is full of uh, industrial archaeology absolutely absolutely yeah and, and it's straight all the way to South Shields there's bits and pieces even and bridges the are fascinating always fascinating yeah some and ancient bridges some of them are on the on the busy cycle path the Waskily Way some of them are in Waskily sort of, please <laughs> some Waskily Waskily <laughs> some of them are in sort of secluded little glens you wouldn't even know are there um, and I suspect there's even more that's sort of probably lurking in the hedgerows that you can't really see or just beneath the surface But you well. really enjoyed writing this book. Absolutely, it's definitely And it's a done well, work. hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know the exact figures yet because it only came out in November last year, but um, it sold out a few times. I have to do more print runs. Uh, I'm currently working on... So it's Amberley Publishing set format, which is 96 pages, uh, about 100 photos, about 20,000 words of text, which I think I exceeded. It's fabulous. Places. So I'm working on a sequel. So because the line went bankrupt... A sequel? A sequel. Stand Up and Time 2, <laughs> Bankruptcy Boogaloo. Um... So it went bankrupt in 1841, um, and the two, basically two halves of the line, uh, either side of concert, were split off and set up as different, well, used by different companies. Um, so I'm focusing for the next one on the western half of the line from Stanhope up the moors to concert, and I've got some superb photographs to go in that one. And it, it, again, with the first one, it's lots of personal stories, newspaper accounts of accidents and incidents and lots of people dying yeah lots of people dying uh people dressing up as ghosts and scaring people along the railway line and getting drunk and fighting with the station masters oh, and, sounds like gary's yeah. life when he was in the army ah <laughs> uh, the good old days yeah and of course then the third element of the trilogy will be your much awaited rook up to stand up railway line uh, that you're refused, maybe at some point. That might you're be refusing a, to write because be you know i love that yeah. one so the third one will probably be the eastern half of the line I have some again some great bits on that that have come to light in recent years and uh but yeah there is also this the superb offshoot of the line from from parkhead which is called the rook up and weather weather hill and rook up railway rook up where the hill one of the two which went across the most but it's a private concern and again 
there's an engine house still standing there. And it's amazing that engine. Yeah, house. Uh, uh, the industrial, uh, the whole Rooker Valley is full of industrial archaeology Absolutely. from the lime, uh, everything, everything you can get. Um, so what next? Uh, so so that's been a big thing. Yes. And you are actually um, just a, a, a bit about uh, you. You are you do some railway re- uh, real life stuff as well, or living history stuff. Yes. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah. So um, I volunteer on the Talaclin Railway in Wales. It's a charming little narrow gauge railway, Talaclin. Um, in Tawin, it's on the Mid Welsh coast, right. absolutely stunning. Um, so I'm a locomotive cleaner there and do all the bits and pieces. Um, do, you let, do they let you drive the engine? I don't drive it. Do you get to fire it every now and then? So I throw a few lumps of coal, it's always good fun. Um, I used to work at Beamish Museum, working on steam locomotives there, which is fantastic. Um, yeah, and do bits and pieces at other railways as well. It's just uh, it's a bit like the, it's a bit like the living history side of things. It's understanding how the engines actually work in the first place. And the joy of sharing my passion with other people as well. So, and um, you've certainly managed to do that. I hope people have enjoyed this talk. Now, uh, I, I was at Gary had one question. He said, "In view of your interest in life being uh, railways and uh, military history, have you ever thought of writing poetry?" Not quite. Not yet. No. No. And the other question Gary asked was, uh, "Do you have a girlfriend?" <laughs> Oddly enough, yes. Didn't seem likely to me. No. <laughs> You have got a girlfriend. Yes, yeah. Fortunately, very tolerant, and uh, and any railway trips are always sort of well catered for with cake and tea to make it uh, as painless an experience as possible. And she is real, not a figment of your imagination. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> well, no Rob, one's giving me funny looks talking to myself just yet. But. Well, Rob, it's been great talking to you. And you. As, a, as I would normally say with Gary, do you like a chatter? Do you like a natter? Whoosh. Well, you're like Chattanatta, and that was Chattanatta with uh, Rob Langham and with no Gary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it